morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, we, as you have uh, just heard and read, are going to be talking about judgment. Yeah, I love how Jess did a great job with the welcome. She's so chipper and joyful, and it's like, hey, welcome to church. Everything's great. Judgmentalism, right? Like, it's, it's an interesting, uh, but th- this is where we're going to be. We are walking through the greatest sermon ever preached this summer, um, and we are not the only one preached this summer, but this summer we're walking through the greatest sermon ever preached uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Um, It is the longest and most in-depth sermon, and it is straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. It is three chapters long, recorded in the book of Matthew. And so this morning, we're rounding the corner on chapter 7, which means that we're two-thirds of the way through it, which makes sense since we're headed into August, which is a wild thought that it is August, like this coming week. We're walking right into that. So, um, But we are right on track with where we need to be in the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we've come to what may be the unbelieving world's favorite scripture, right? Like this seriously, if there is a passage of scripture that non-Christians and even unbelievers completely like have memorized, it is this passage. Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, right? Anybody ever heard a non-Christian use that scripture? Am I the only one here that, like this is very popular, especially in our society, because we live in a society uh, that is all about self-actualization, right? Like it feels good, therefore, if it feels good, therefore it must be good, and so lean into that. That must be your truth. And so if it feels good, it must be good. And besides, I mean, who are you to judge? This is the language that we hear a lot in society, like mind your own business. Maybe some of you have used this this way. I think nobody captured this idea better than the 20th century poet Tupac Shakur. The man rallied a generation with the line, only God can judge me. Is that what this is about? Like, did did Jesus preach these words so we could all just coexist in the dark? Get along in the darkness. Blind lead blind. I mean, after all, you're blind and I'm blind and we're all just trying to figure out how to survive in this world of sin, right? So the point of this passage is not to show us how to just exist in the dark and put up with sin. The point is to show us how to remove the cause of the blindness so that we can see clearly. That's what this is talking about. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to walk through Matthew 7, verse 1 through 6, and I'm going to ask three questions, okay? Number one, why might I be blind? So this isn't going to be about looking outward everyone else. This is going to be about what God wants to do in us. So the first question, why might I be blind? Number two, why or or what might I be blind to? And then number three, how can I see clearly and why does it matter? So the title of the sermon this morning is Blind Judgment and LASIK Grace. 
And here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Condemnation blinds, but Jesus offers LASIK grace. You guys know what LASIK is? LASIK surgery. It's the eye surgery where they use a laser and they reshape your cornea. (laughs) So condemnation blinds, but Jesus offers LASIK grace. So Matthew 7, back to verse 1. Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, or the the, the piece of dust, or some versions say splinter, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye, or the beam, or the plank, or that, like a piece of lumber, right? Or verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck, out of your eye when there is the log or beam or plank in your own eye. You got the imagery? You hypocrite, he says. You mask wearer, you actor. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the first question we ask here why might I be blind? See, the thing about being blind is you're likely blind to it, right? Think about it. Like, the only reason a blind person knows that they're blind is if they've been blind from birth is that someone's told them you're blind. Is that they said there's more out here. I can see things and color, and they describe them. They go, wow, oh, yeah, okay, I don't, that's not me. Can't see that. Can't see. And so, what if you've never been able to see and everybody is too cowardly to bring it up? Jesus is not a coward, and he brings it up. There's something that tends to obstruct our vision and either blind us totally or seriously affect what we see and the way we see it. And, and so if you've been walking through this series with us, then you know that last week we walked through the chapter uh, 6, verse 25 through 34, which is where Jesus addresses the topic of anxiety, another big topic in our society now. And, and while there is a chapter break between uh, chapter 6, verse 34, and then chapter 7, verse 1, um, those chapter breaks aren't actually in the original manuscripts. That's just for us to help clarify the Bible. That's not like a God-ordained chapter break. In fact, Jesus is still on that same train of thought. He's still in the same flow of ideas here. And so in other words, it's not a coincidence that Jesus flows directly out of talking about anxiety and into being judgmental. Because these two sin issues are deeply connected. In fact, you show me a judgmental person and I'll show you an insecure and anxious person. Now, anxiety doesn't necessarily mean that you're judgmental, but if you're judgmental, there is likely anxiety underneath that. So in chapter 6, Jesus warns against having a negative attitude towards your own life, anxiety, right? And then in chapter 7 here, he warns against having a negative attitude toward the lives of others, judgment. And so the entire theme of the Sermon on the Mount has been, as we've seen, that it's all just this symptom. What he's saying, he's holding up the spiritual mirror to us, and he's saying, like, this is all about where you are with God. And I want you to see that. That's what Jesus is doing. 
And before we continue, though, I want to make it clear here that it's not wrong to judge things in terms of discernment. Say discernment. That's important. Like, and Jesus is not telling us to just throw out all wisdom here or that we're never called to discern between good and evil. We are called to seek justice. And in fact, we're going to see here that this is actually a call to be more discerning so we can truly seek justice. Not a call to do less, but to do it well. That's what he's, this is the idea here. So, but the idea of judgment here, or, or judging that we're presented with here, carries the weight of condemnation with it. And so it's the Greek word chronos, which means uh, it's the word that's used in a courtroom where a judge sits high above the rest. Get the imagery of a judge in a courtroom, and he's up on that big bench of judgment, right? And that lo- lofty plank is up there above you. And he's handing down the verdict, a sentence, even a condemnation sentence. John Stott, who had a much better grasp of the English language than I do, um, he used the term censoriousness. There's There's a term for you, censoriousness. And he used it to describe the kind of judgmentalism that Jesus is referring to here. And so when somebody's given over to censure, It means that they're consistently weighing and condemning the lives of others. They're fault-finding, scornful, critical, and condescending. In a word, they are condemning. And so last week we talked about this mountain of separation that leaves sinful humanity in this state of condemned separation anxiety from God. And that the inner thought life and the attitudes towards your own life are shaped by what you believe about your relationship with God. And so here in this passage, this same principle applies, but not only to your life, but also to the way you perceive the lives around you. And so if you believe God is scornfully fault-finding and critical of you, then it's going to affect the way you are towards the people around you. Again, your horizontal relationships are the overflow of your vertical relationship. That's a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so in verse 3, Jesus asks us this question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Look, when Jesus asks a question in Scripture, listen. Like, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. When God asks people a question, it's not because he doesn't know what the answer is. He's God. He knows. He wants you to know. It's a rhetorical question that he wants you to ask yourself. The implication here is that there's this huge obstruction in your eye, and it's affecting the way you see, but you don't want to deal with it. That's the tendency of humanity. So catch the imagery here, okay? Like it's, this isn't just any obstacle. It's a massive piece of lumber, a huge beam or plank, which is in your eye. But catch the imagery. It it could be that Jesus uses this language just because he's a carpenter and he's just calling upon an image that he's familiar with, like planks and sawdust, right? But I think that there's a lot more to it than that. I think that's true probably, but I think that there's something deeper because there always is with Jesus because he's Jesus, right? So I, I think it's representative of that judgment seat. I think it's that plank. I think it's a wooden, lofty plank of judgment. It's protruding. It's, it's obstructing. It, it flavors and colors all that the judgmental person sees, and it's protruding from their eye. 
and they can't see anything but that. So for the judgmental person, condemnation colors everything. It's, it, 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 this doesn't mean that you're not saved if this is how you're struggling or this is something that is a characteristic of your life. That's not necessarily what it means, but it may mean that you've got a judgmental blind spot. So, good question, why might I be blind? Well, because my own sense of condemnation, whether true or not, obstructs what I see, like a massive plank in my eye. It's why dry, graceless, religious people tend to be so judgmental. Like if you think this is how God is towards you, this is how you'll view not only yourself, but everyone else, including God. Which leads me to the next question. What might I be blind to? So I've got three things that this judgmental plank blinds us to. Number one, it blinds us to the truth about ourselves. Number two, it blinds us to the truth about others. And number three, it blinds you or us to the truth about God even who he is and how he is. So again, when we have this judgment beam in our eye, it colors the way we see ourselves. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially holding up the spiritual mirror and showing us what's in us. He's provoking the sense of being poor in spirit, someone needy for a savior. Remember, that's how he opens the sermon back in chapter five. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are needy of God, they're poor in spirit. They're not self-righteous in themselves. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so for the person who views God through the lens of only judgment and condemnation, even asking the question of whether they might have this obstruction in their eye or not, that's not an option. If you truly view God as condemning and fault-finding and critical in this way, you're not going to be able to handle him finding any fault in you. You can't handle the mirror. You see, for the judgmental person, having the obstruction in your eye means you have sin in your life, and that judgment beam is going to lie to you and tell you there's no hope for you if you have sin in your life. You're wretched. You're condemned. Judgmental people live with an underlying sense of condemnation and rejection from God. And it affects everything. You may say you accept his grace with your words, but if you're not willing to look at yourself in the spiritual mirror and deal with your own junk, guys, that is probably a major symptom that you've got this judgment log in your eye and you're blind to the truth of what God says about you in Christ. Because what he says about you in Christ, if you're in Christ, is that you're a child that his grace is sufficient for you. And see, grace provides a safe space to look God right in the face and see what he sees when he looks back. And I'm gonna tell you something, guys. His love is not blind. True love is not blind, but it is unconditional. He sees you. He sees you. He sees all of it. That's why he paid for it. He knew he needed to. That's why the cross. And he loves us enough to deal with these things that hinder us from receiving more of him. He's, he wants to get that log out. 
Even if it's just a speck, he wants to get it out. And so how, how then, how do you deal with this spiritual mirror? Like, what do we do with the spiritual mirror? Like, what do you do with the spiritual mirror? When he raises it up or when, when we start seeing these things, we're confronted. Like, do you have trouble dealing with your own emotions? Or do you tend to just stuff them away and ignore them? Do you find yourself constantly defensive even when multiple people bring up the same concern in your life? Right? Do you find yourself quick to analyze others, but the moment someone analyzes you, you get defensive? It may be a symptom of this judgment log, or at least a speck of it. The only way that you'd be able to even deal with this is in the grace of God to know that you're secure in his arms. Like even right now, you might be thinking about how all this applies to somebody else, <laughs> right? Like you're thinking, this is good. Man, my spouse needs this right now. You don't look at your husband or wife right now. Don't do it, <laughs> right? Or maybe somebody who hurt you in the past, maybe a parent or a friend, or maybe you're con more concerned that somebody else is thinking about you right now. Like part of coping with this judgmental log in yourself is that you'll try to look everywhere but at the log, because that means taking a serious look at yourself. Again, judgmental people run from the spiritual mirror. But those who are poor in spirit, this means, it means letting Jesus ask the hard questions. And so this passage was never meant to be used as a self-defense mechanism or weapon against the world or others. It was never designed by Jesus for others to say, who are you to judge me? Never. This is about letting Jesus do what only he can do within us. So Jesus asks, why don't you notice the log in your own eye? The answer for the truly judgmental heart would be because I don't believe your grace is enough to get rid of it. Right? Like literally, it's an obstruction, so you try to look around it. I, you know, can't see it. It's right here. Everybody else sees it because it's 20 feet sticking out of your eye. But Jesus confronts us. And, he, and, and he, he confronts us with this perfect question to help us identify that judgment beam for what it is so we can be rid of it. But this requires deep reception of his grace and belief that his grace is enough even for you. Otherwise, you'll just ignore the log in your own eye as a coping mechanism, and then you'll see splinters of it in everybody else's eyes, which blinds us to the truth about others, not just ourselves. You see, if you're a judgmental person, then you're going to expect everyone else to also be judgmental. You'll just think that this is how people are and, and, and you know, even just the kind people, they're actually just hiding it. They're just good at hiding it. So they're just not genuine. They must be fake people. This is part of, this is part of that judgmental paradigm. That one of the things this judgment beam does is it prevents you from getting close to other people. Like one reason that you might be very uh, picky about who you connect with, it might be judgmentalism. Now, it's important to be wise in the community that you choose, right? Like, that's an important piece. Scripture talks about this. But the fear of being judged and or the habit of judging will prevent you from forming close relationships with anyone. And so the fear of judgment or exposure is very real in those who struggle with it. 
right? So after all, if this beam is coming out of your eye, anybody who comes near you, if you've got a 20-foot beam in your eye and you're walking around church, right, people are going to, every time you walk past them, people are going to be ducking, right? Somebody looks over here and everybody's like, whoa, right? Kind of want to get away. Like the image gets very literal here. Imagine this 20-foot beam, it it, it becomes a, a, a subconscious tactic even, of a judgmental person because in some ways it's comforting that people are kept at a distance. These things happen again. It may not be conscious, but it becomes subconscious. In some ways, it's comforting because it keeps people at that distance. Criticizing others for their speck is a way of keeping them from addressing your log. It keeps relationships, again, at arm's length. The thing is, though, that they may not even have anything in their eye. Again, that judgment it being blinds us to the truth. So they may have a speck in their eye. They may have a log themselves. But if you've got a log in your eye, you're not going to be able to tell. It'll make you see things even that aren't there. So, so what you're seeing in their eye may just be splinters of the beam in your eye because it's all right here and it clouds everything like a filter. And you can't tell because you refuse to deal with what's in you. Modern psychologists refer to this as projection. One article described projection as, quote, a mental defense mechanism that pushes your feelings, thoughts, and emotions onto those around you. And it's normally something about yourself that you're unable or unwilling to deal with. Another article I read described projection as, quote, the attribution of one's own ideas, feelings, or attitudes to other people or to objects, especially the externalization of blame, guilt, or responsibility as a defense against anxiety. It's why the things that upset you most about your spouse or your children or the people that are closest to you are often things that remind you of you or things that rattle those insecure or wounded areas in your life. So when we project, we see people through the lens of our own log, our own pain, our own wounds, and it can be blinding. Instead of helping people, you're just beating them up with the log of condemnation in your own eye. And so again, it doesn't just affect how you see yourself and others. Ultimately, it also will blind you to the truth of who God is. After all, he's the only one who can remove that log in the first place, right? Again, like he, eye surgery requires trust. Think about it. It requires getting close. It requires intimate relationship even, even a lot of vulnerability. Like you ever let somebody touch your eye? Right? Remember as a little kid? You used to play that game where it's like, see if you can touch the eye, eyeball. It's like, you, you people with contacts, I don't know how you do it, man. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I don't even trust myself to do it, you know, much less. Like it's a vulnerable feeling. It requires a lot of trust. How do you know who to trust? Discerning good and evil is an important part of this thing. That judgment beam will make you pull back and wince. Right? Especially if you've been poked before. And you'll pull back in judgment of everyone and wince, including God. Look at verse 6. 
you should be wondering, who can I trust at this point? You should be wondering, I need discernment. I need to know right and wrong and good and evil. And what's, this is kind of what's being developed in this thought process. And then verse 6 says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. <laughs> so, all right, it seems like a pretty radical shift here in the process, right? And that thought is like, okay, he's talking about pigs and pearls. What? What? I thought we were talking about specks and planks and, and, and not judging. Now we're talking about pigs and pearls. What's happening? So he's, he's talking about not judging and, and not pointing out the speck in your brother's eye without first removing the log in your own eye. But contrary to society's mind-your-own-business perspective, Jesus does not say never help your brother with the speck in their own eye. Not at all. You got to have a new way to read this because society has put its own interpretation that's wrong on it. And so, in fact, he's trying to help us clear up our own vision here so we can see clearly to help each other without beating each other up in condemnation. This is the point. So by the time you get to verse 6 here, again, if you're reading this accurately, you should be feeling a real desire for wisdom and discernment a sense of poor in spirit and a need for help from God to know how to navigate forward in wise discernment without judging and condemning. In light of feeling this desire for discernment, that's when Jesus speaks this verse. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So context is necessary to understand what he's talking about. Both dogs and pigs would have been associated with ungodly, carnal people, okay? So they were seen as unclean animals by the Jews because they lived only to feed their physical appetites. That was something that was representative of dogs and pigs, and the Jews often referred to the Gentiles or the godless nations as dogs or pigs. They had no value for the precious things of God, only that which feeds their self-centered carnality. Okay, the, the, it's the idea of the dog or the pig or the godless nation is how's this going to benefit me? How's this going to feed me? I got to look out for number one, right? If it feels good, it must be good. The carnal person hears a teaching like this and they twist it into a self-serving, self-protective weapon to justify ungodly behavior. Only God can judge it. Mind your own business. Didn't Jesus say judge not? They use this precious teaching, you might call it a pearl, and they use it to attack you. They choke on it. They use it as a weapon to judge because all the world knows is judgment. It's judge or be judged. They operate from that measure of condemnation. So the moment you even say the word sin, the response of the sinner who knows not grace is, who are you to judge? So this is another reason why the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. If the only reason you approach God is to seek his hand to feed your appetites, then the moment he throws you something that you don't understand or doesn't immediately feel good, instead of trusting him for the greater value that's in it, you say, I tried Jesus, he didn't work for me. You choke on Jesus and you turn and attack Christianity in the church. 
You see it all the time. But as I've said before, man, if you tried Jesus and he didn't work for you, it's because he's not your employee. Right? He's the creator of the universe. And he's the savior of your soul. Like we don't just seek his hand, we seek his face. We behold his glory. We trust in him and we trust him and we worship him, not so we can get stuff from him, but because he himself is the greatest treasure and the greatest pearl of all. That's what this is about. See, Jesus isn't saying withhold truth here, though. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't preach the gospel to the nations because they don't deserve it. They're just pigs and dogs. We know that's not what he's saying. He's not saying be careful who you give the gospel to. That's not what he's saying. We know that's not what he's saying because that's exactly what he commissions us with at the end of the book of Matthew. So this is a call to discernment and a warning against condemnation. There's even a clear commentary here If you look closely and you have ears to hear, I want you to to, to lean into this. There's even a clear commentary here on how that judgment beam has blinded God's people from seeing the truth about Jesus. After all, he is the pearl of great price from Matthew 13, 45. He is the way into the kingdom of heaven. Remember the pearly gates? It's actually just the one pearl gate in heaven. That's how it's described in Revelation. And Jesus is that pearl. He's the way in. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. He is the gate. He is the pearl. You following me? Okay? And so this is, he is the precious pearl. And so they couldn't see him for who he was. They're blinded by their own carnal ambition in an attempt to appease the Romans. The religious leaders handed Jesus, the pearl of great price himself, over to the carnal Romans, whom they considered dogs. And what happened? They nailed the Savior King to the ultimate beam of judgment, and they crucified him. God came close to his people, but his people wouldn't let him near. His own people were so blinded that they wouldn't let the only one who could remove that beam of judgment get close. And we've been doing it ever since. They tossed the most valuable pearl in the universe to the dogs and pigs who did indeed trample him into the ground. Incidentally, those same Romans within that very generation would turn on Israel and attack. They decimated Jerusalem and the temple, just as Jesus said, and they did it within a generation of the crucifixion and resurrection. So this beam of judgment, It doesn't just blind us to the truth about ourselves and others. It blinds us to who God is, the truth about God. This is a call to recognize that when you are blinded by this beam of judgment, you will condemn both good and evil and even God himself. This is not a call to dismiss wisdom and discernment. It's a call to step down from the throne of condemnation because that throne belongs to God alone. So final question. How can I see clearly, and why does it matter? So the only way to remove that beam of judgment and condemnation from your own eye is to let Jesus remove it. It means letting him remove the condemnation that stands between you and him. 
It's not just on a surface level. It means really letting the Spirit get close to you, even in you, and take that breadth and depth of God's love and sufficient sacrifice on the cross to take it in and go, that's, that's for me. And so he removes the beam of judgment by being nailed to it himself. And he says, it's gone. I'm not on it anymore. That's the power of the resurrection. You've got to take this truth in and then let him renew you from the inside out. Like, this is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die, nailed to the beam, nailed to the cross, and he conquered death in the grave. He was buried in the ground like a pearl trampled underfoot, right? And then he rose from the grave. He conquered sin, death, and the grave and and paved the way through the resurrection to eternal life, judgment being gone. Eternal life with God. And it starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts the moment we place our faith and hope in what he did for us. This is the power of the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Romans 8. This is the gospel. And the Holy Spirit then fills us and renews us and regenerates us from the inside out with a new heart and a new perspective, reshaped and reformed. Not long ago, though, I I noticed uh, I couldn't see as well out of my right eye. Right? I I was kind of doing one of these things. I can't remember what I was doing. I was like at a shooting range, and I was kind of like, this is blurry. What's happening? And so... Uh, I went to an optometrist thinking I needed glasses, and they, they did some tests, and it turns out, um, I'm thinking my right eye is jacked up, and turns out I have 20-20 vision in my right eye, right? So I was kind of confused, and I'm going, how is this possible? 20-20, that's perfect. That was weird, because my right eye is definitely worse than my left eye. And they said, that's because you have better than perfect vision in your left eye. So <laughs> I was feeling pretty good about that. I was like, oh, all right, it's great, you know, until the doctor asked if I'd been hit in the head pretty hard recently, to which I answered, yes, why? <laughs> Turns out that uh, he said my right cornea has been damaged, likely, and it will slowly degenerate over the years, and so I'll probably either need uh, glasses or LASIK surgery to go in and reshape the cornea. And he said, it's not bad yet but the symptoms are there. And so, hear this. Trauma has affected the way I view the world. And in order to see clearly, I need a doctor to go in internally with a laser and reshape things. And this life will beat you up. So you need that laser to continually do this. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. It doesn't matter how hard I focus. I'm, it doesn't, I'm like, you ever try to see something's blurry and you're like, I can do it. I can, you can't do it. Okay. There's no matter how much I, I can't make it better. I need help. And that's the first step to getting help is recognizing that you need it. Because the biggest hurdle we face in spiritual maturity is a mirror. Like, like even this week, a friend of mine said, the only way spiritual growth is possible is if we're able to see ourselves in our most raw form without running away. Whew, that'll preach. So I figured let's do it, right? <laughs> but that requires, again, being poor in spirit enough to face what's true without putting up those walls or hiding behind those beams. 
We've got to first take the log out of our own eye, and then we'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. So, so how do we get it out of our own eye? Well, you need LASIK grace. LASIK actually stands for, let's see if I can do this, laser-assisted in situ keratomiliosis. That's a mouthful. But it's a procedure, they say, that permanently changes the shape of your cornea and the clear covering of the front eye using an eczema, eczema laser. And so we need God himself to penetrate and regenerate through his spirit so we can clearly see and discern well. So, so we can discern how to help our brothers and our sisters and how to live in a world filled with dogs and pigs and getting hit in the head. Because God's also come to rescue even the nations. And you don't sit high and lofted and, and lifted up and condescendingly look down on them. We are them, but for the grace of God. And so this doesn't mean that we don't judge right from wrong. In fact, getting rid of the judgment beam is the only way you can seek true justice with real discernment in the first place. Like When I was in college, I got a taste of uh, true wickedness for the first time. I had grown up in a pretty relatively um, great neighborhood and in and, and kind of the Bible Belt in North Carolina with a great family. And I, I was relatively a new Christian at this point. And uh, I went to Southeast Asia to bring the gospel to unreached people groups because I had tasted and seen the goodness of God and I wanted to take it to people that didn't know about it. And so I went to Indonesia and I spent an entire summer on the other side of the planet and I witnessed lostness, darkness, and injustice in a way that was really hard for me to comprehend at that point. It still, at that point, still is now. Like, I didn't have a category for some of the things I experienced. I thought I did, right? I'd seen movies, but when you see it up close, it's like, oh, P.S. If you haven't yet, go see The Sound of Freedom, the movie. Side note, if it's still in theaters, I think it is. The Bistro, Beach movie, Bistro, is that what it's called now? I don't know. Look it up. Wickedness is real in this world. The truth was that I had been pretty disillusioned at that point about the world that we live in, and that summer was like an ice bucket in the morning, right? Just sobering. And in that, I had witnessed also and experienced believers that were just, I mean, precious, precious Christians in, in extremely hostile circumstances. When I went back to college that summer, I found myself pretty judgmental, especially towards Christians. I, I just experienced passionate believers in these crazy circumstances who knew this precious pearl that they had in Christ, and they joyfully endured real persecution as a result. And then I come back home, and I find people who are free to worship and build the church and the kingdom that they didn't even care. And it was eating me alive. I can't, you would not even recognize me if you didn't know. I was so judgmental. <laughs> I was so upset. I, I went on a retreat in the mountains with a college ministry I was a part of. I'm going to get through this one. Woo. Okay. And, and they encouraged us to take this four-hour retreat of silence and just go pray. Um, there's a place called Rockbridge. Some of you might have been there. And, and, and I remember thinking, you know, I, I actually remember when they said that, I was like, great, I got to get away from these people. So I hiked up a mountain, and I'm just praying, and honestly, I'm just complaining the whole time to God. 
I don't even know if you, it was like imprecatory prayers. It was just kind of like smite them all, God, kind of stuff. And I, I came to this overlook in the woods where I could see the meadow below, and the entire field was filled with college students from all over North Carolina and Virginia. We'd gathered to this place, and they're just sitting in the sunshine in this meadow, and they're praying, and they're reading their Bibles. And not my immediate thought when I saw them was they don't even want to be here. They're probably just forced by their parents to come. Literally, what I, I literally remember, I, I was thinking, they... they it's probably the first time they've even read their Bibles all year, and it's only because they have to. And I was disgusted. So I, I kneeled down. And, and as I did, the tree line, you know, you go, the tree line blocked the view. And I just kind of kneeled down in my mood. And right at my feet, was the biggest copperhead I'd ever seen. Huge copperhead. I didn't even think they got that big. And he was coiled up right at my feet, ready to drill me, ready to strike. And I, a normal person, right, they would have uh, backed away at this point, slowly backed away, but I was, as I said, in a mood. And so I just stayed there, eye to eye with this viper. And it was like the danger of the moment just lured me in. They sucked me right in and captured me. And instead of slowly backing away, I actually pulled out my journal from my book bag slowly. That was the movement risk I took. And I remember as I kneeled right there, I, I, I wrote in my journal, I kneel in the presence of the serpent, but I stand in the presence of God. At this point, the snake... He's about to strike, so he was getting extra angry. So I did slowly step back, and I stood up. And when I did, it was like I was seeing all those college students for the first time. And I felt God say, these are my children. They're here, and I love them. Just like I love you. Now, how would you would expect to feel condemnation for God, from God in that. I would, especially I would expect that. I was feeling guilty for even feeling the way I was. But that's not what I got from him. They are here. I love them just like I love you. And I felt the way God felt about them. And I felt the way God felt about me. And it changed me. Completely changed me. I backed up a bit from the snake, and I sat down right then, you know, and right then and there, I'm confessing my judgmental attitude, and I'm repenting to God, and it was real, and then I hear something just down the ridge below me, and it was this young freshman from another school, and he's climbing up the watershed, and he was just playfully spending time with God in the woods, right, like he's just, I remember just thinking like he's having the time of his life right now, and I'm watching him, and I remember he, he seems so happy to be out there, but he's grabbing every rock in front of him. He's climbing up the watershed, just clambering through the woods like he'd never been in the woods in his life, you know. I'm like, it's summertime. We're in the mountains, you know. And he's just enjoying life, and, and he's headed right for that snake. I mean, like, just going right at it. And, and I kind of stood up and so he could see me, and he, he sees me, and he just sort of waves, and he was like, hi. You know, he just kind of goes the other way. And uh, 
he was just totally oblivious to what no doubt would have happened if I wasn't there. And I remember God saying, don't be naive to the danger. Evil is real. Wickedness is real. Be wise, not blind, and help those that can't see. Because the reason God removes the logs in our eyes isn't just for us. It's so we can help our brothers. All right? Like one thing Tupac did say that I agree with is it takes skill to be real. Time to heal each other. You guys didn't know you were going to get some Tupac lines this morning when you came to church, did you? <laughs> like when you've really allowed God to get close and do gospel surgery on you, you know what it's like to be blind. You, you also, though, know what it's like to see. And that sight doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you helpful. It's a difference. It's not condescending. When you see a speck in your brother's eye, you don't judge and condemn. You discern and relate. You seek to understand from a place of compassion, not condemnation, and yet not compromise either. Because you know that speck can easily grow into a log like yours. Right? And so this is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul, I think, was so willing and able to be so helpful to so many. Paul intimately knew what it was like to have the judgment beam in his eye. And he had a serious judgment beam in his eye before he came to Christ, especially. He'd been one of the fiercest persecutors of the early church, condemning many people to their death. The guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and planted churches all over the known world had a major judgment beam in his eye and condemned, as I said, many Christians to death. But in Acts 8, you should go back and read it, he was encountered by Jesus himself and he experienced the LASIK grace of God. I mean, literally scales dropping off of his eyes, it says, so that he could see. Why? Because he was blind. And so from then on, he never considered anyone's specs greater than his own. He considered himself even, he referred to himself as the chief among sinners. And it was from that place of humility that he was able to point others to the same grace that he had received. And so he encourages us in Galatians, he's writing to the church at Galatia, and he says in Galatians 6, verse 1 through 3, he says, brothers, say brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, because the law of Christ is love. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So this is how we build trust with one another. Right? Like discerning, not condemning. This is why the true gospel community is founded upon the grace of God in Christ and why a church that proclaims and demonstrates grace is so important. It's compassion, but it's not compromise. There's a difference. And they aren't mutually exclusive. So what could be more important, man, than a covenant family of believers that's a safe place to navigate the condemnation debris field that is this world? Right? You're going to get specks in your eye. You just are. But again, this passage also is not meant to be weaponized as a defense against others to justify your own sin. Like this is a call to go to the Lord as David did in Psalm 136 and, and where he says, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
And so like when you, you notice a speck in your brother's eye, the best thing you can do is first go to the Lord about a potential log in your own, right? I'm gonna say that again. <laughs> when you notice a speck in your brother's eye, the best thing you can do first is go to the Lord about a potential log in your own eye and then go to those you trust and ask the same. Now, if there's nobody in your life that you trust to tell you the truth in love from a place of grace, then that may also be a symptom that there's a log in your eye. But I got good news. I know a great eye surgeon, right? His name is Jesus. And his track record, especially with us in this room, is miraculous. And so we can be rid of the condemnation because Jesus has gotten rid of it for us. So may we agree with the grace he has made available to his people and receive it ourselves in a full measure. I'm going to close with what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 36 through 38. He says this, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray.